So glad to see you. My name is Nick. I am youth pastor here. And the reason that you know that I'm preaching is because if you look at your context clues, you're like, oh, Thanksgiving's coming. So welcome to National Youth Pastor Preach Sunday. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Nonetheless, uh, while I am excited to be here, I'm also incredibly excited for the week that is in front of us. I am a Thanksgiving junkie. It is my all-time favorite holiday for real. I love the food. I love the family. And I love the football. And so because I'm a good Baptist, I used an alliteration there. I want someone to point that out to Craig when he gets back that I still can actually do that. But I also want to let you know that in addition to me loving Thanksgiving, this is also me. Like I am this person. November 1st, my decorations were down from the attic and we were decked out and ready for Christmas. And I know, listen, I know some of you right now, you like I see your faces. You're appalled. Like you can't fathom a person, especially can, can I listen really to a person who decorates for Christmas before Thanksgiving? I get it. I know what you are called. You're called a holiday purist, okay? That's what you're called. Um, and what I've come to discover is this is a big debate actually, more than I thought. So I've discovered there's kind of two people in this equation. Number one, there's the people who absolutely will never decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving. And then the other people are people who like to be happy. So you do you, whatever you want, but that is uh, how I see things. And I actually, I'm applying for a job in case this preaching thing doesn't work out, kind of low-key. I made a little graphic on my phone. I'm hoping our communications team takes note. But this little graphic, I think, helps uh, explain the season that we're in, right? Christmas is a season and Thanksgiving is a holiday. Don't forget, food, family, football, Thanksgiving is my favorite. So I'm not anti-Thanksgiving. I just know the turkey tastes the same whether the tree is up or not. And also a turkey didn't come down from heaven and die for my sins. So I'm going to celebrate my Savior while the rest of you all can keep your stuff in the attic. It's, it's your choice. But whatever side of the aisle you find yourself on, I do know that I think we can all agree that the most ironic holiday wrapped up in that whole diagram there, the most ironic day on our calendar is this day called Black Friday. Am I right? We just get done sitting around the table, talking with our friends and our family, talking about how grateful we are, how much we love them, how much we're thankful for all the things in which the Lord has given us. And then by 6 p.m., we are in line, ready to mow over dear Aunt Sally because there is an electric toothbrush on sale and I just have to have it. And all I know is that I actually recently came across this ad or this, this statistic about ads. I don't know if you know this, but it, it's estimated that the average American sees on average 10,000 ads per day. And like, that's overwhelming, just that number in and of itself. And you're, we're probably like immune to it, numb to it, because we're just used to it, you know? And it got me to thinking like, what is the purpose of all of these ads? Well, you got to think, right? For, for the companies doing the marketing, like their goal is to make money off of you. But the way in which they kind of tap into that is really interesting is they want you to feel like unless you have this electric toothbrush, your life will amount to nothing. Like you can't brush your teeth with a regular toothbrush. You, you know, like, and so that's, that's what they're kind of throwing at us. And we got this Black Friday kind of stuck right on the heels of this moment where we can be grateful for all that God has done for us. And I just think what, what this illustrates to me the most as I was thinking about this this week is that 
all of us, they, they tap into it with marketing, but all of us want our lives to matter, don't we? We want at the end of the day, the moment we stand face to face with God, we want what we have done on this earth to have made an impact. The decisions that we make, maybe the, the money or the amount of money that we have in our bank account, we want it to be making the most amount of impact that, that it can, or even the careers that we've chosen to invest our lives and our time into. All of us are kind of striving towards uh, wanting and having a life that matters. And so Pastor Craig, over the last several weeks, has been articulating the importance, and, and not only the importance, but the power found in the gospel. And we've been in this series called Resonance. And so whether you are this year all going in, all in for that electric toothbrush, or not, all of us would like our lives to matter. And so how can we make the most amount of impact with the time and space and moment in which God has placed us. And so that's why today we are looking at the fourth and final part of this series, Resonance, called How the Gospel Makes an Impact in Our Community. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be starting in verse 8. But as you do that and as you're turning there, I think what's really important is that each and every one of us, we want the gospel to make an impact in our community. But what I really want to hone in on today is what is your role in that, right? Because that can seem daunting. That can seem kind of big. But what is your role in making an impact personally that can have a rippling effect to our community? You know, in week one, Pastor Craig made a statement. He said, every church has a resonance. And every church should have a gospel residence. And gospel is kind of a big word we throw around at church, and we'll get to what that is in a minute. But, but perhaps the question that I want to explore today is, if this church ceased to exist in the mid-cities here in, in DFW area of Texas, would the community around us notice or care? And that's sobering, because I think all of you, especially, you wouldn't know what to do at 1130 on a Sunday morning next week if we cease to exist. But would the community around us care that we're not here? And so today, as we explore this passage in Acts chapter 14, I'm going to give you two responses that you and I can actually grab onto and take from the example of the Apostle Paul. And finally, at the very end, stick around because I want to make you understand the, the importance. I'm going to share with you this gospel resonance hack, this one thing that all of us can do starting today to make the maximum impact and how our, uh, the gospel can impact our city and the people around us. So just for a little bit of context before we dive into this actual passage, last week if you were here, Pastor Craig talked about the miraculous interaction between Peter and Cornelius. So you can go back and watch that online if you haven't had a chance to see that yet. But there's an interesting shift or a pretty dramatic shift that takes place about halfway through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the shift that happens is early on, we, we really see them focusing and following the apostles, Peter, the disciples that were with Jesus. And we see a lot of stories of Jewish people making a conversion from their Jewish faith over to a Christian or a, a Jesus-centered faith. And it's the reason that's of note is because the Jewish faith was very monotheistic, right? Monotheistic means people believe in one God, right? But then about halfway through, we see them switch from following Peter and the disciples to this man named Paul. And we, we kind of don't hear from Peter and, and stuff that much 
the back half of Acts, and that's where we are. But Peter, his approach, or Paul, I'm sorry, Paul is now talking to a bunch of different communities and crowds of people that are not monotheistic, not Jewish people making the jump from Judaism to Christianity, but now people who are more polytheistic. Poly meaning multiple. So people who, who believe in multiple gods or even maybe multiple different ways to, to faith or to heaven or whatever the case might be. And so the, the fact is this, is that I think what we can learn from Paul is that Paul gives us really good examples of ways in which we can have a personal gospel impact and gospel resonance. And so that, that dramatic shift that I'm talking about, about halfway through the book of Acts, maybe only even like a third, we see in Acts chapter 9 is when Paul, uh, was formerly known as Saul, had this incredible interaction on the road to Damascus. And so I was just curious because now here I am going to preach a passage out of Acts 14. And I was like, I'm curious what the breakdown is, what the timeline is. So I was on this website getting some, some understanding of that and Paul's different missionary journeys and how many are there and where were they and all that stuff. And I just have to share something with you. I was on the website and this was the photo that they had up there of the Apostle Paul. And I thought to myself, that's not Paul. Like, I don't know what Paul looked like, but I know it wasn't that, okay? And so I pulled this up on my phone and I ran out of my office and I asked my teammates, my other people, my student staff, I was like, guys, in your mind's eye, is this what Paul looks like? And they're like, no, that's weird. And I was like, thank you. So I'm a big like criminal show junkie, okay? And so like, you know those people that do those artistic renderings? Like you don't have a photo of the person, but you can explain it. So I was like, are those people real? I didn't even know. So I reached out to someone on Instagram, found someone, and I was like, okay, I want to I wanna do an artistic rendering of the Apostle Paul. So I started explaining it and what he looked like and all the features and stuff like that. And I want to share it with you, okay? This is what they came up with. It is wild. <laughs> I, he looks eerily familiar. And apparently, who knew? He was bald. Now we know. Now you know what Paul looks like. Nonetheless... Uh, guys, please don't let him fire me for this. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, Paul went on three different missionary journeys. You can snap a photo of it on your phone, maybe jot it in the margins of your Bible. But uh, he went on three different missionary journeys, Acts 13 through midway through about 15, the rest of 15 through midway through 18, and then 18 through the rest of the book there. And uh, again, I don't need you to memorize that or, or commit that to memory, but I say that to show you that we are in the middle of Paul's very first missionary journey, okay? That's kind of the context. He was sent out from Jerusalem, and I have a little map here I want to share with you, because in verse 8, you're going to see that Paul heads into a place called Lystra. So about uh, in the middle, towards the top, you'll see Lystra in the area of Lyconia, around Iconium, Antioch, in the region there of Galatia. Lystra is where this, this passage that we are today is taking place. Again, you don't need to memorize that, but I share that with you to share Paul's already been to multiple different places. This is stop six or seven on Paul's first missionary journey. So now, all that context being said, let's check out what it says in Acts 14, starting in verse 8. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet. He had never walked, and he had been lame from birth. If you're a note taker, underline from birth. We'll get back to that. That's, that's pretty important. It says in verse 9, he listened as Paul spoke. And after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. The man jumped up and he began to walk around. Just imagine 
that setting, right? And so it says in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their Lyconian language saying, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, so another guy, was in a temple outside of the town a little bit. He heard about this. He brought bulls and wreaths. He brought them to the gate because his intention was with the crowds to offer a sacrifice to the gods. Check out what happens in verse 14. It says, The apostles Barnabas and Paul, they tore their robes when they heard this. They rushed into the crowds and they shouted, Guys, people, why are you doing this? We are just people also, just like you. And we are proclaiming the good news to you, the gospel, that you should turn from your worthless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, God, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, just like you guys were worshiping these Greek ancient gods. And although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what was good, he gave you rain from heaven, a fruitful season. He filled you with food and he filled your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. So despite what Paul and Barnabas said, the crowds Push forward. Verse 19, it says, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won the crowds over, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, and they thought he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up, he went into the next town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for a city called Derby. Verse 21 says, after they had preached the gospel in that town, so in Derby, and made many disciples there, they returned to Lystra, they returned to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships. Uh, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Whew. Mouthful and also like what a wild like story. I'm sure you've read through Acts before, maybe not, but if you have, you, you probably didn't spend a lot of time here in verse or chapter 14. Same for me. I've read through the Bible, read through Acts different times, and this one like I just didn't really resonate with me. Resonance. Uh, but Pastor Craig gave me this passage and I'm like reading it and I'm like this is a fascinating story. And so what I want to point out is there's this overarching thing that's going on here. Paul is challenging the overarching assumptions of the culture that he's in. He's saying the gods that you believe in, the polytheistic way of thinking, that's not it. It's about this one way, this one monotheistic, one God way of thinking and salvation is available through Jesus alone. I mean, that is a controversial fly in the face of culture type of message. And I just, as I was putting this together, I wanted to ask you to do a little rhetorical question in your brain. Where we live now in Texas, would you say we're more like monotheistic or we're more polytheistic? One God or multiple ways to God or multiple gods? See, polytheism in ancient times, it was about the, the mythological and multiple gods that, they, that we see, right? We see mentions of Zeus and Hermes and all those different mythological characters. But we also see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, Moses says this. He says, do not have any other gods besides me. Like that is the very first command out of the Ten Commandments. 
And so in America, maybe even in Texas, we may not worship like little gods or statues or the Greek mythological gods of this day that we see here. But I wonder sometimes if we find ourselves worshiping other, maybe idolatrous things or even thoughts like happiness or like Black Friday is coming up, right? The, the idol of stuff or maybe even wealth. None of those things, happiness, stuff, wealth, none of those things are bad. But when they raise to a spot in our lives of idolatry, i.e. being above God, right? Now all of a sudden, I wonder if we're a little more polytheistic than we might think. And so I want you to check this chart out. I actually dropped the link in the uh, app notes. So if you want to grab it, you can grab that there. Take a picture. We won't be here long, but I wanted to show you this because it says 50% of evangelical Christians say that their way or their belief system is the way to heaven. Our church, Pastor Craig, myself, our staff, we would claim that Jesus is the way to heaven. And whether you're there or not, what I do want to say is that that is the claim of this church. Meanwhile, 44% of evangelical Christians say that other non-Christian religions can lead to heaven. So the people who claim, who are part of our strain of thinking and believing, who would be a part of a quote-unquote monotheistic faith, say, well, there's other ways to God. And so while you and I may think like, oh yeah, we're definitely more in a monotheistic, one God type of way of thinking, I wonder if maybe our society can relate a little bit to what we see going on here with Paul in Lystra. And he does some incredible things, and I want to show those to you because I think both of them are really applicable. So like I said, two ways that Paul responds. Way number one is he exhibits obedience. Paul exhibits obedience. And I started in verse 8, but real quick, I want you to look, if you have your Bibles open, look back at verse 7. It says, there they continued preaching the gospel in Lystra. And then it goes on, talks about a man who was sitting there without strength. He'd been lame from birth. He was listening to Paul as he spoke. He looked directly at him. Paul saw his faith and he said, stand up to your feet. And he jumped and the man began to walk around. But we didn't start in verse 7 the first time we read it, but that sets the framework. Because I don't know if your Bible is anything like mine, but I have this big header that says, uh, mistaken for gods in Lystra. So a lot of times we read based on the headers, but, but those were put in after the Bible was written. And I think verse 7 is really important because what it shows is Paul's obedience. All of Paul's life has led up supernaturally and with a divine appointment to this moment. And he couldn't have done that without being obedient to what God had asked him to do. I mean, Paul went on an incredible amount of missionary journeys all over, at that time, the known world, traveling everywhere, preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Paul is being obedient to what is going on. And what's interesting is when I was reading this, in verse 9, it says, uh, he looked directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, that's interesting. And I tried to study it a little bit. I looked up the original Greek. And the Greek, honestly, it's, it's less interesting the way that it is intended to be read. And we translate it, it kind of looks different. But the way the Greek puts it really is, it's more along the lines of this. And Paul, comma, looking, dot, dot, dot. So essentially, Paul's up there speaking and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. It's much like me right now. I'm up here talking to you. And I can make observations and look, honestly, I can look at all of you. Sometimes you think you're anonymous sitting in those seats. You're not. I know everything that's going on, especially you, sir, in the back sleeping. Um, it's very, that's what Paul was doing, right? I'm just kidding. There wasn't anyone sleeping. But that's what Paul was doing. He noticed this guy and he was kind of able to lock in on him and be like, okay, this guy's like vibing with what's going on. 
And it makes a point, like I said, that this man was born lame from birth. Interestingly, Peter in Acts chapter 3 healed a man uh, born with a physical ailment, and Jesus did so in John chapter 9. And scholars say the reason that this is important is because they didn't want to mistake anyone who maybe halfway through life came up with some sort of ailment or something like that, and all of a sudden he just got better. They could explain it away with other physical reasons. They wanted the born from birth part because it's a supernatural, has to be God-ordained type of healing. In John 9, the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind from birth? And Jesus says, so that on this day, God may be glorified. And that's what's going on with Paul. On this day, God is glorified through Paul's obedience. Paul didn't seek this guy out. Paul didn't go, hey, I'm going to go heal that lame guy and we're going to like go go take over the entire community. Paul was obedient to the moment directly in front of him. And look at what happens in verse 11. It says, the crowds saw what Paul had done and they shouted in their Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Once the miracle, once the gospel, once the power had been seen, the people of that polytheistic culture, they needed to try and make sense of it because you couldn't just leave it unexplained. You had to be like, this dude was born lame and now he's walking around. Like there's something going on here and they didn't know what to do with it. So they assigned it back to their own polytheistic way of thinking. In fact, they thought Barnabas looked like Zeus. So Zeus is like a big guy. So that must have been Barnabas, must have been a little bit bigger guy. They said, Paul looked like Hermes. This is what Hermes looked like, a little smaller. And honestly, I think because of this, my artistic rendering was exactly spot on. There he is. Again, please don't let him fire me. But my point is this. The power of the gospel could not be ignored. The people of Lystra had to do something with it. And they're trying to make sense of it. They're like, let's, let's do a, a sacrifice to these gods. And so Paul was obedient. That was the first way that he responded. But the second one might really have been the secret sauce of this whole thing. And this one is probably the most important posture for all of us. And so the second way in which Paul responds is he responds with humility. And you may not like notice that or see that exactly. Let me show you what happens. Verse 15, Paul and Barnabas, they run back in and they say, listen, we are people like you. They try to get rid of the the sacrifices and all the things. and, And then they start preaching the message, the exclusive message of the gospel of faith through Jesus alone that gets you to heaven and not this way of all these other gods. And so Paul kind of builds out and, and makes this case. I just wonder, How easy would it have been for you or for me to get some of these accolades and to like low-key kind of like it and to accept it? Because, you know, so far what had happened, if you actually look all the way back up in verse 5 in the previous cities, it says the Jews and the Gentiles were mistreating them and attempting to stone them. And so now Paul is actually having a little bit of success here in Lystra and his immediate response is not to take it, not to, not to even, not that he was going to maybe like pretend to be Hermes, but be like, yeah, but you know, I'll, I'll take some of this praise. Like it feels good now. He immediately deflects it. He's like, it's God. It's not me. It's him. I'm just a regular person just like you. I think it's easy sometimes to want to give into the fleshly desire and to receive that worship that might come from other people. But when we're obedient and pair that with humility, crazy things can happen. And so Paul and Barnabas, they kept their eyes on Jesus 
where it should have been. And God rewarded them for their well-doing and they lived happily ever after. Let's pray. No, that's not what happened at all, is it? Like, that's what we like to preach. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Everything will go your way. That's not at all what happened. In fact, the Jews and Gentiles from uh, Antioch came back down, took this opportunistic moment of this crowd and chose to use it to kind of rile them up and be like, hey, we should stone these guys, right? They've been trying to do it since verse five. And now they do. And it says in verse 19, that they thought Paul was dead. You might be thinking like, Pastor, how do you know that? Because it says, thinking he was dead. Like there was no mistake. They, some scholars actually think Paul was dead and was resuscitated. We're not gonna get into that, but either way, Paul was in bad enough shape that it would have been like, hey, dude, you okay? And I could see Paul be like, yeah, man, I need like, I'm gonna go home take a mental health day. This preaching the gospel thing is, is no joke. And I'll be back uh, in Lystra in a couple weeks when I can kind of like get my bearings. We would all understand, wouldn't we? That's not what Paul did. Look what it says he does. Verse 20, the next day after being mistaken for dead, him and Barnabas get up and they go on to the next place. They go to Derby, And then in verse 23, after doing all of that, Paul and Barnabas return. We don't know how long is in between there, but this right here, because you might be thinking like, dude, that's great. Thank you for telling me all these stories, showing me what happened. But what is, how does this mean anything for me? And here's where it is, okay? Paul and Barnabas, they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in verse 23. Why? To encourage the disciples. And if we use our context clues, what that means is that when Paul proclaimed the gospel in Lystra, despite him getting stoned, despite the crowds riling up, still the gospel penetrated someone's heart, made a difference in that community. Someone converted to faith in Jesus and churches were started and churches were launched and they needed to return to encourage the disciples, to encourage these new believers, to set up leadership with elders and all these things. But all of that because Paul was obedient and because he was humble. And it would have been easy to not want to go back there. I mean, those people wanted to kill you just a few weeks ago, right? But Paul comes back and he reminds those disciples now in Lystra, he says, listen, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He does not mince any words. And so now what? What in the world are you and I supposed to do with this information, right? You might be thinking like the, the gospel, we know, we see it and we believe that the gospel does in fact change communities. But when I'm asking, if I were to ask any of you, if I were to grab coffee and say, do you want the gospel to change your community? Do you want Jesus to be made much of in the town you live in? All of you would probably say, yeah, I do. And if I was like, okay, cool. What does that mean for you? Like, I don't know, pray a lot, I guess. And I think what's interesting, what I want to really point out here is that there is an individual response moment. Paul didn't go into Lystra looking to, to reach the whole town. Paul went into Lystra selling his tents in the market and was obedient to who God had placed right in front of him. And then when the accolades and the praise started to come his way, he deflected it to God, even so much so that it almost got him killed. And I think for you and I, you have no doubt, right? You've no doubt, this entire series, this entire church, you've no doubt heard this verse before, especially if you've grown up in church. Acts chapter one, verse eight. 
Jesus is talking to his disciples, the beginning of this whole thing. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. And week four of a resonance series, which is about like the expansion of this message of the gospel, is about the uttermost parts of the earth. And this entire month, you know we've been talking about Africa, which is our version, among other countries, but specifically our big give and our initiative for our church right now is focused on Africa. And that's an uttermost parts of the earth thing. And we can get up here, we can talk about it, and you can hear it and believe in it and, and, and be rooting on Africa and our church planters across the seas, but it can feel very distant. And I think sometimes this whole the gospel affects a community thing can feel so different or so distant, so far, so unattainable. And I just want to point out this, this right here is the hack, the one I promised you. I think it's important for us to be obedient and to be humble and then to invest in what God has placed directly in front of us. You know, I was in college, uh, I was a Bible college student, and so I liked reading, or I liked the idea of reading. I'd order a lot of books, and they'd sit on my nightstand, but I liked reading, so I was perusing through my dad's bookshelf, and I came across this book. It is old, the graphics are terrible, uh, but when I saw it, immediately, I knew what it meant. Because Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is also uh, where we get the, this, this nickname for that passage called the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not called the Great Commission in the Bible. We as Christians have, have dubbed it, named it, nicknamed it the Great Commission. I like this a lot better, right? Because what it feels to me is it feels easy, accessible, and approachable. And so we may be out here talking about Africa, how the gospel impacts a community. You're like, I want, I want our church to matter. And if it were gone, I would want the people to notice. Great. How are you investing in what's in front of you? With obedience and with humility in the everyday commission. And Africa, it's across the ocean and far away from here. Guess what? We know people and have relationships with people who are living out, making disciples, and living out the everyday commission right where they are. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if some of those churches in the, the places where we have relationships with through our Cross Creek network cease to exist, those communities, they would feel it. So here's the thing. God has given you an opportunity. He's laid an investment opportunity in front of you through the Big Give to invest in Africa. How are you going to respond to him with obedience and with humility? And maybe for some of you, you can't, you can't make the financial investment. I get it. What would be a sacrificial thing you could do? Maybe it's, it's, it's committing to pray for Africa for the next year, putting a reminder in your phone. Maybe it's committing to give more incrementally as opposed to, you know, all right now in this like big give kind of thing. How can you invest in the everyday commission? Because the Lord has laid it upon our heart as leadership. And I'm just wondering, and I can't answer this for you, but I'm wondering how the Holy Spirit may be stirring that up in your heart as we kind of wrap up this whole resonance series. So for you, tomorrow, you're maybe traveling to go see family. You're maybe going to work, going to school. How can you respond and invest in the thing that God has placed directly in front of you with obedience and with humility. That's it. 
That's what God wants. God wants your heart. And you know what? The gospel impact that can take place, it's not on you. It's up to him. And so you may be in here this morning thinking like, okay, that's great. But I'm not even sure if I understand what you mean when you say the gospel. And I don't even know where I stand on this whole Jesus thing. That's great. We're glad you're here. And we want to actually give you a moment today, right now, to respond to that. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? Wherever you are in this room, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in here and you're hearing this thing, this, this ruminating on the gospel, all of everything that Paul did in Lystra, all of everything our church planners are doing in Africa, and you're like, why is this so important? Guys, it's so important because the fact is, we sung about it earlier, our sins separate us from God. We are prone to wander. And sins, they can't be removed by any good deeds, anything we do. No amount of coming to church, no amount of giving to the big give will change that. But paying the price for sins, Jesus died and he rose again. He was fully God. So his punishment was good enough to cover all of mankind, but he was also fully human. So his punishment was transferable between you and him. The Bible says that everyone who places their faith and trust in him alone will be saved. And our life with him starts now. It goes on forever, on into eternity. And if you've never made that decision today, then what I want to encourage you to do, still in the quietness of your seat, with every head bowed and every eye closed, simply repeat this prayer after me. There's nothing magical about what I'm about to say, but I want it to be a, a, a resonance of what's going on in your heart. And you might say something like, God, I know I have messed up. I know I need a savior. And I give my heart and I give my life to you. It's that simple. With your head still bowed and eyes still closed, if you made that commitment, I would love just at the end of the service, maybe come talk to me or even better yet, scan the QR code in front of you. Just let our team know because we want to celebrate with you and encourage you in your next steps of this early journey. But for the rest of us, what I want to do, because I think some of us maybe have prayed that prayer long ago, I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit would make it clear to you right here in this room what your next step is. You don't have to go try and change the community or the continent of Africa on your own today. You just have to simply lean into who God is, what he says, and be obedient and take those steps with humility to invest in what's in front of you. That may be the big give. That may be starting a spiritual conversation with your uncle at Thanksgiving this week. But whatever that step is, I want to pray for each and every one of us in this room. Lord, thank you. For everyone who's here this morning or within sound of my voice, God, I pray that you give them not only an amazing Thanksgiving, but Lord, more that you help their life to matter. Not because of the amount of money they have, the amazing career that they've chosen, but Lord, <laughs> because you are good and your gospel changes lives. It's changed ours. And Lord, we want it to change the people, the family, and the community around us. So God, help us be obedient. Give us the courage and confidence to step out in obedience this week and invest in the opportunities that you have laid so easily right before us. Lord God, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.